Hello and welcome to National League Town, Mets fandom, Mets history, Mets life, with Long Island's own Greg Prince and Jeff Heisen. Hey, Greg. Greetings from finally, maybe, dry Long Island, Jeff. I'm still shaking off the rain from last weekend. On today's show, we remember Dennis Rybant and we return to the Greg Fan Commandments. But first, I'm just back from Detroit. So, Jeff, you took a little trip recently, as did the Mets. In fact, I think you might have wound up in the same place, although hopefully your trip went better than theirs. Well, I went to Detroit to see the Mets, and the good news was that I didn't stay for Thursday's game. I got there on Tuesday with expectations of going into Canada, and that was canceled because of the rain out. But I did enjoy seeing Comerica Park, even though I did not enjoy seeing the games played in Comerica Park. Uh, A few thoughts on Comerica Park, which is nine years older than City Field. It's very nice. Now it was very clean. The staff was very friendly. It wasn't crowded. So maybe it's not as clean and the staff's not as friendly when it's packed. But it was not packed. The stadium honors the rich history of the Tigers. In fact, all of Detroit does. The hotel I stayed at within walking distance of the ballpark had boardrooms named after Tigers Hall of Famers. There was a picture of old Tigers players above my bed, which seemed a little weird, but that uh, that was in my room. Uh, there are statues. I love statues. We've talked about that on the show. There are numerous statues of Tiger greats. Statues are a little weird, not as weird as in Nationals Park, but they were terrific. There's a statue of Ernie Harwell by the main entrance. They did not have, and this surprised me, a Hall of Fame and Museum. I expected that. Their history is found on in various, I guess you'd call them kiosks, which are supported by tires, car tires, through on the third base side of the stadium, separated by decade. So as you're walking on the third base side, the 30s, the 40s, the 50s, and all the artifacts you'd expect to see in a museum and Hall of Fame are there. So that was very impressive. The scoreboard's great. There wasn't too much music. They had interesting between-inning activities. Maybe they were interesting because I'd never seen those before, but I enjoyed those. And and I enjoyed the ballpark, uh, except I didn't find there to be any unique food. I don't consider Little Caesars Pizza, a Detroit staple, to be a unique food item. They also had some good craft beer. In fact including Atwaters and Bell's local breweries. There was one craft brewery who didn't just have a stand with craft beer. They had a simulated craft brewery there with fake wood and chalk signs in one corner of the ballpark. And that was nice. Another part of the park had a pub that was just for the for anybody. You didn't have to have a reservation or a fancy ticket. And they had craft beer. It wasn't just the local, excuse me, it wasn't just the national brand. So I was impressed with that. One thing that surprised me, Greg, and this is a nitpick, I'm always interested in hearing what song is on after Take Me Out to the Ball Game. In New York for the Mets, it's Lazy Mary. In Baltimore, it's uh, Thank God I'm a Country Boy. In, In Washington, somehow they have a good song, Take On Me by AHA. They haven't ruined that great song by playing it there. At Yankee Stadium is the Imperial March. May the fourth be with you, of course. 
but they just kidding about that. In Detroit, they didn't have a recognizable song. And if you're in Detroit, if you're in Motown and you're not playing Dancing in the Streets at that moment, Dancing in the Seats, you're doing it wrong. So that's a nitpick. But other than the games, I was impressed. And this was also impressive. And I don't know if other teams do this. I sat through Tuesday's rain out. I sat there for three hours in the Tiger Club so I wouldn't be sitting in the cold. Uh, And it was excellent because it was warm. And no one gave me a hard time for wearing a Met hat. In fact, twice I heard, you're from New York. The Mets are my favorite New York team. Well, it's a low bar, of course, but you know what they were going for. So I sat through the rain out. The next day, the Tiger said, because you entered the stadium and sat there, uh, we're giving you a free ticket to any other game in May. So I didn't have a ticket for the night game on Wednesday. So now I had a free ticket. And I thought that, I don't know if the Mets do that, but I thought that was very nice. Besides transferring my ticket from Tuesday to Wednesday afternoon, I had a freebie for Wednesday night, which is what it was worth. Although the Mets uh, rain out against Atlanta last Friday night, which wasn't a rain out. It was a, a shortened game. They did something similar. They've been pretty good about that since Oh, I don't know, 2021. I don't know what changed about the Mets that year. Oh, Steve Cohn bought the team. That's right. (laughs) I've never been to Comerica Park. I went to Tiger Stadium the first year of interleague play because the Mets were playing there. I jury-rigged a business trip. Suddenly, it was very important that I go to Michigan and write about Michigan-based companies so I could spend uh, some time at the uh, corner of Michigan and Trumbull. Uh, Good old Tiger Stadium which I still miss, even though I only went once and I was never planning to go back. Uh, you know, again, Tiger Stadium, 1912, same week as Fenway Park. They both opened together. So I know that there are a lot of Tiger fans who mourn it and still miss it. But it's always been my impression that uh, Comerica Park, uh, you know, having gone through its its shakedown cruises, all ballparks will when they're replacing a legend actually did pretty well and i'm glad to hear that you had a good time despite what was on the field and you know i i I, it's nice to hear that the tiger fans uh, greeted you warmly i've i've always had sort of a an affinity for the tigers not exactly my favorite american league team but i have nothing against them you know the last three games (laughs) notwithstanding uh they beat the yankees in three different playoff series in the 21st century so i truly approve of that and you know a lot of interesting history like you said and i'm so glad to know that it is on display in one of these years i will have to get out there and and check it out when they're playing anybody but the mets because between literally between you and me we have never been to a series in michigan where the mets played and won a game that's it's stunning uh but uh it's it's just it's especially stunning this weekend these these few days because it was. I thought the Mets were going to sweep. The Mets probably thought they were going to sweep. And oh yes, one other thing: the Tigers' PA announcer, when they introduced the Mets' manager and the Tigers' manager, said, "The Mets' manager, number eleven, Buck Showalter. Who cares what number he is? No one knows what number he is. And I didn't know that until they they really flashed on the scoreboard. I know he's number eleven. I didn't I know, thought I know. about he's it. Never worn. He's never worn the jersey that you can see it in a game. It is on his warm up." jacket okay. or swe- sweatshirt and he has taken pictures in it uh n- not not to go off on a tangent but uh, UniWatch recently had a story about a movement per- perhaps uh, being perpetuated by the team that's running out of numbers 
in the neighborhood uh, to not to not even bother assigning them to coaches or managers because so few of them show them anymore. Maybe somebody would enjoy wearing number eleven or number fifty something in the case of the coaches. But uh, I guess I guess they're just being thorough. The f- gameplay was just shocking, and you say, "Well, the games are so fast." You know, I think. I, I don't care when the Mets are losing the game's over far too quickly. The first game on uh, uh, Tuesday, I thought they had it, had it in the bag and uh, out of Vino left a sweeper over the plate. Then Marte missed the fly ball before that. And it was just shocking, but you say, okay, they lost that one. You didn't think they were going to win because that was Joey Lucchese's game. They're going to win the nightcap because they have Scherzer and Scherzer wasn't any better. And then today, uh, Verlander ha- had needed one inning to get out the kinks, and it, it, it that was. But the Mets couldn't afford one inning, so that was a shocking weekend. And now, Greg, we, as, as of this recording, we were for a 500 team. Yeah, which is surprising in that they don't look like they're good enough to be 500 right now. But that's right now. Uh, listen, we, we all know how baseball is, and anybody can beat anybody at any time. But I feel like we might have had some semblance of this discussion last September when the schedule lined up in front of us with what felt like so many soft touches like the Cubs and the Pirates and the Nationals and the A's. And there were losses here and losses there. Again, they weren't getting swept too often. I think there was one sweep at the hands of the Cubs during that period. This portion of the schedule even before the Braves series that that wasn't so great, even including the Nationals last week. I take nothing for granted, which which is not to say, oh, what a visionary I am. Just when you're playing like this, you lose to bad teams. And all due respect to the teams that have taken series from us recently, the Nationals and the Tigers, neither one of whom, to use one of our favorite phrases, setting the world on fire in 2023, and neither one of whom, looked that good in beating us, beat us. You can see why they're not such great teams. <laughs> can see why Oakland wasn't such a great team. Obviously, we swept them. That wasn't a problem. But two of them, we got by, by the skin of our teeth, which gave me a little pause. And again, I know every win is a win. Every loss is a loss. It doesn't matter how close. But you begin to have a, you know, you, you, you get a little feeling about something sometimes. So I, I can't say I was surprised. And again, I didn't fly all the way out to Michigan to experience it. And maybe if I were there, I, I would have felt, oh boy, here are my Mets, they're, they're going to do something. That first game of the day-night doubleheader was set a tone, I think, because, you know, they clawed back and Detroit seemed ready to give them the game and the Mets gave it right back. Uh, best I could say for Adovino, uh, a, a new daddy and all of that is maybe he was tired. <laughs> maybe he's been through a lot and uh, he didn't make any excuses, which we always appreciate. He said, you know, they, they asked him afterwards, oh, is it the layoff, everything else you're going through? And he said, no, no, no excuses, you know, made a bad pitch or whatever. Scherzer is a worry. Maybe we just have to say, okay, Scherzer needs a little more time. We don't want to say it or hear it. But the fact that he did have the extra layoff because of the suspension on top of the layoff he had before, which seems like ancient history from the bad back, but Boy, did he, I don't know what it looked like in person, but he did not look like he had anything uh, on television last night. And as far as Verlander, yeah, one inning where you're going, oh my God, not this again after Scherzer, but he, he got it together and he could have very well have had one more start 
in the minors, which might have helped, or facing anybody but Eduardo Rodriguez, who one of those uh, tip your cap situations. If if Verlander and the bullpen, uh, including Dominic Leone, who by the way, I was not even aware was on the team until the game started. Um, you know, they give you what they gave you. You'd feel pretty good about that. And so maybe they just couldn't do anything with Rodriguez. But they couldn't do anything last night either against Lorenzen. Sooner or later, you got to do something against somebody. We hope uh, as this weekend. We hope it's against Colorado this weekend. I'm going to make my city field debut for the season on Sunday. I hope that we are. I was going to say, I hope we're going for the sweep by then. You know what? The motto, one game at a time. I hope we win Friday night. And I just hope, you know, it doesn't rain on Sunday. How's that? Dominic Leone, the 1,199th Met overall. One away from a round number. Can you name the 1,100th Met? He's on the roster right now. Or no, he was on the roster this season. Let me put it that way. Tell me. David Peterson. In in 2020, shortly after the mini season began, he came up and was the first round number, if you will, round number player ending in two zeros to play with another round number player because Michael Conforto was Mr. 1000. David Peterson was Mr. 1100. They were teammates for a couple of years. And now uh, I don't know who 1200 is going to be, but he'll be here waiting for David Peterson to come back so they can say, hey, we've got something stupid in common. One thing Buck said after the game last night, which sort of disturbed me about Scherzer, he he said that Scherzer had, and, and I'm, I'm getting, I'm paraphrasing. He said that Scherzer was a little off and he caused him to give up some runs, same as Lucchese. No, Scherzer is Scherzer. Lucchese is supposed to be off. That's why he's Joey Lucchese. Don't equate Scherzer and Lucchese. But what he was saying was Scherzer was off, Lucchese was off. Lucchese is supposed to be off. Scherzer is not supposed to be off. Don't call Scherzer the same as Lucchese. That seemed like... That was a poor uh, rationale by Buck, and it's frustrating, and there's always something going on with with Max. He said he got that start out of the way, and he hopes that now he can get into routine. We'll see how he does on Tuesday. Yeah, we got to hope that because he is, believe it or not, our co-ace. Right now, we don't have an ace, not the way everybody has pitched. It ain't Lucchese anymore. It ain't Senga yet. And we're going to see with Verlander, but, you know, Scherzer's the guy who gave us most of a good season last year. And all you can can do is trust these guys because we don't have any extra pitchers in our back pocket. God knows we could use them because when when you see the numbers that they put out there with, oh, the Mets have, you know, one of their worst Aprils, Mays, you know, whatever the uh, number of games is in their history in terms of giving up home runs. I think it's like the worst through 32 games. And, you know, the, the ERA is up among the league leaders in reverse. It's up. So that means they're not leading. We know how ERAs work. Uh, the, the FIP is up. Uh, this, you know, again, the, the, the best thing you can say about mo- pitching most days is, oh, they were saved by the Leones and the, the Yakaboni and uh, the Brighams <laughs> and so on and so forth. And that's great. It's great that you're getting contributions from the guys who are coming in to pitch in fifth innings and sixth innings. It ain't great that they're pitching in the fifth inning and the sixth inning. So, you know, again, I, mean, you know, I was going to say, you got to have heart. got to have trust. 
Moving on. Last week on the Tony Kornheiser podcast, Jeff Passive of ESPN was the guest. And Tony was very happy because the Nationals, he's a Nationals fan, had beaten the Mets' first two games of the Mets series. So, But Tony was surprised. So he asked Jeff about that. And Jeff's response made a modicum of news. I love Mets fans, but they're just the worst. Mets fans, they take every game like it's the end of the world. And I love them for it. And I loathe them for it. Let me pause here by saying a little hyperbolic there by Jeff, but we'll move on to the main point. I know that fans aren't going to like to hear this. If you have a playoff-worthy season, you're still going to lose 45% of the time. And I know some of those losses are going to be to bad teams. It's tough to reconcile them in the moment, but the truth is that there are going to be bad losses in every single baseball season. One Jeff to another, no kidding. We know this, but that's the game we watched that night. What do you think, Greg? The game we watched that night, Jeff Passan, hopefully not passively watching but actively taking notes for his next column. I've been moved to think of a phrase from my sixth favorite baseball movie, which our listeners at home may or may not remember was Moneyball. It was on recently, so I watched part of it. This is where they're trying to decide, do we keep Carlos Pena or do we get rid of him so we can play Scott Hattieberg? Peter Brand, the Jonah Hill character, seems worried that Billy Bean, played by the good-looking guy, whose name I can't remember. Brad Pitt. What's his name again? Brad Pitt. There you go. I can remember the fictional name of Jonah Hill's character, but I cannot remember a super famous movie star. He's uh-huh. he's worried that they're not going to be able to explain it if they make this trade of a good-looking young player like Carlos Pena. And I just this phrase hit me. I don't think we're asking the right question. I think the question would we should be asking is, do you believe in this thing or not? I do. It's a problem you think we need to explain ourselves don't to anyone. Uh, I don't think we have to explain ourselves to Jeff Passan. I don't think we need to explain ourselves to the likes of Jeff Passan. I think we can react as we react and say what we want to say. We're Mets fans. We came of age as Mets fans carrying banners to tell the world what we thought. It wasn't always, yay, the Mets are doing great, even in years when the Mets were doing great. You know, somebody brought up Tim McCarver after uh, one of my recent uh, Faith and Fear posts where I was kind of bemoaning how the Mets were playing. And he said, oh, you know, it's it's like Tim McCarver said, you're never as good as you look when you're winning, not as bad as you, you look when you're losing, which I think is a useful observation. But it's also one wielded as a cudgel when a fan gets overly worried or, for that matter, carried away by how good the team looks. So in the context of the moment and what Jeff Passan was responding to, you know, we got about a month in the books and we're not really sure how good or not good this team that we watch every night is. You can still be a good team and lose games and be a bad team and win games. I think what the issue is for us just watching, and when I say us, I mean all Mets fans, our team hasn't looked like the same team in both guises, winning and losing. Some days we're a powerhouse and some days we're groping for answers or seeking solace in peripherals. We don't get that sense that, oh, you know, they're good. They just had an off night. Or we don't also get that sense that, oh, my God, they're terrible. They're never going to be any good. They just got lucky tonight. 
I think we're still trying to figure out our team. And sometimes we give voice to thoughts. There's another national commentator uh, whose name I think has become more familiar to Mets fans this year, Ben Verlander, brother of Justin, uh, you know, a guy who I guess does things for Fox MLB, uh, tweeted something last September that stayed with me. And I don't remember the exact phrase, but he wanted us to know because that was the point where we were winning one, losing one, winning two, losing two. Hey, Mets fans got to relax because you know what? You've got a really good team. And that was before his brother signed. And I will admit it kind of relaxed me. And I will also admit that I kind of regretted relaxing because it didn't feel real. And I just kind of kept telling myself, well, Ben Verlander played in the minors and certainly knows major league talent when he sees it. He says we're okay. It's going to be a okay. And then I was reminded that the two words least likely to get a person to calm down are calm down. Sometimes we just don't want to. Uh, I think what a guy like Jeff Passan may be missing, and again, this isn't a personal thing with Passan, it's just the role he has. Uh, he's missing empathy for the fan because it's his job to report on baseball from a distance. Look at those crazy people saying this or that or doing this or that in the stands. Say distance, you know, the fans from a distance. His job is primarily about breaking stories of front office machinations or telling us about larger trends. It's very useful stuff for us to consume. But if he notices a bunch of tweets from Mets fans who are restless because we've lost a few games in a row, so be it. The passions of the world don't bother with empathy. They don't care which among 30 teams wins the World Series. Columnists love telling you that they don't root for anybody. They just root for a good story. And I can kind of understand that, but then you're kind of poking your nose into our business, into our secret society almost. It's not that secret if we're sharing it via Twitter, Facebook, or whatever. But, you know, these are our folkways. Kind of want to say, leave us alone, Jeff Passan. You know, taking them one game at a time is probably the best advice for any fan. But if you're a fan who wishes to extrapolate from a bad stretch that what you're seeing reflects a problem in the games ahead, again, so be it. Personally, I tend to think it's silly to go all, as Sandy Alderson put it, after the Mets were off to a 2-5 and five start the year after they won the pennant, Panic City. But I think it's sillier for someone to monitor the behavior of those who get a little jumpy within reason. As fans, we have the right to express ourselves. And we also have the right to tune out what we recognize as expression we don't want to hear, whether from national baseball columnists or, truthfully, our fellow fans on social media. What Passid was saying there is that don't overreact, but we do overreact, as you said, as fans, because we're watching the game. We've invested in that game through our time and our money. And if we were plopped down in September and found out that the Mets were 95 wins to the good, you would say, okay, whatever happened in the losses is in the past. But that's not how the season goes. We are aware that each game is one one sixty second of a puzzle. We can be aware that the season is long and be upset about today's game at the same time. Some days you look like you don't know what you're doing, and other days you look like Brad Pitt, because, you know, <laughs> that that's a movie star's name. In 2005, Greg wrote a column called The Greg Fan Commandments, and since we're speaking about fan behavior, we thought it was a good time to revisit that column, as we have done from time to time. It's a reoccurring segment on National League Town, and in my mind, it deserves its own music cue, but we don't have one. It's a column from 2005, and we revisit it to see if the comments, the commandments, quote-unquote, are still applicable in 2023. 
Now, when Greg wrote it, he wrote he put the term as commandments, but that's tongue in cheek. They're general rules, general guidelines for for fan behavior. And we're going to revisit four of them today. And what I realized, Greg, is that some of our listeners may be younger than the column. Yeah, at this point, the, the column... Uh come July, we'll be able to register to vote. Uh, I don't think it can legally get a drink, but I, I think uh, a friendly server might look the other way. Yeah, it was a long time ago. I was just a lad of 42 then. Uh, again, we've done 20 of them. Let's look at four more. Keep your years straight. Don't refer to 1969 as the year Tug McGraw said, you gotta believe. True, a presidential candidate once did that and later got elected, but you're going to have to be as charismatic as Bill Clinton to get away with it. What were you thinking about there, Greg? That's a real topical line for 2005, bringing up something Bill Clinton said in 1992 about something Tug McGraw said in 1973, but not 1969. And that was something that had stayed with me. Uh, Bill Clinton had won the New York primary, I believe, in 1992 and wanted to ingratiate himself to New Yorkers and said something to the effect of, well, it's like Tug McGraw said about the 1969 Mets, you gotta believe. Alarm bells went off in my head that had nothing to do with the result of the New York primary because Tug McGraw did not say that until 1973. As I get older, I realize sometimes, yeah, years do blur together, especially the eh years. But I, I still stand by my feeling that, especially for a franchise such as ours, that in 2005 had, what, six postseason appearances to its credit and since then has added four more. There aren't that many that you should get confused. And now and then I had run into people who couldn't remember what year so-and-so was in what World Series, not necessarily the Mets. I thought, how could you not remember that? And I realize not everybody files things mentally the same way, but you got to believe was 1973. The Miracle Mets were 1969. 2005 was the year of the Great Commandments. And uh, you guys can look up the rest for yourself. If you're wearing, you should be watching. Ever notice how many people in Yankee caps wander around town while a Yankee game is in progress and they're not listening to it or don't seem to be in any rush to get to a television, let alone the stadium? They're probably not actual fans. You don't see that during Mets games because you're a good fan and you're watching or listening to the, to the Mets game and not gallivanting about in a cap representing a team you don't pay attention to. Good point then and still a good point because I think a lot of people visit New York, and they think that what we call a Yankee cap is the official cap of New York. And I, I read some marketing material, and it says the Mets are aware of this and want to change that. So I think that comment was pertinent then, and it's pertinent now. Yeah, I'm pretty sure the Mets would love to sell caps to people who don't necessarily care about baseball because it spreads the brand and it gives the impression maybe that you're a little more pervasive than you are or you're not just dependent on the standings that said one would hope that if you're wearing your you're on your way to watching just like i said 18 long years ago it would be great if the if a meds cap was a fashion statement and if, if the statement was i want to be associated with the best that new york has to offer and the best that baseball has to offer i still get the feeling that most people wearing a meds cap are wearing a Mets cap because they're a Mets fan. The other day I was in a situation 
wearing a piece of Mets apparel. And I was asked by the, the other person who I learned was a Mets fan said, Oh, you a Mets fan? Or, or is that just like, you know, something you're wearing? And, you know, so sometimes I wear shirts from colleges. I've never set foot on their campus just because for one reason or another, I have it or from events I haven't been to because maybe somebody gave it to me. I'm wearing a Mets thing because I'm a Mets fan and we wouldn't be having this conversation, me and this other person, if there was a Mets game going on at that moment, because you'd be damn sure I'd be watching or listening or together me and this person would be watching and listening together. Listen, sometimes you're, you're out and you have things to do and you put on a Mets hoodie in the morning and you didn't think that, oh, there's a one o'clock game today. So I'm not going to be too hard on those who are wearing but not watching. But ideally, you and your wardrobe and the Mets should all be in sync. Give those good vibes to your team and spread them around and then tell the folks on the street, hey, I'm listening to the game right now. I'm, I'm looking at my phone at the very least. Um, hey, let, let's get into that local tavern and watch the Mets, preferably on Channel 9. Keep up. Fans of a team that plays in the media capital of the world should never be taken by surprise to find Gerald Williams on their roster. They should be horrified by the occurrence, but not surprised. First of all, rest in peace, Gerald Williams, who passed away before we started this podcast early in 2022. In my opinion, Greg, I want to know what you think. I don't know if this is as applicable because of there are so many transactions. One day, Steve Nogasek isn't here. The next day, he is. Who's Steven Bingham? I heard his name in spring training, and now he's on the mound. I don't think it's as easy, even though there are more outlets to find out. I don't think there, it's as easy to keep up with the transactions because there are so many. Yeah, I would say this commandment might be a little dated in that regard. The roster is larger most of the year. In September, it's smaller than it used to be. And with the way especially relief pitchers are shuffled in and out, I think you can be forgiven for not realizing, oh, we sent that guy down two days ago. Oh, this guy is on his way up. But the larger point holds. And I, I guess I'm I'm always going back in my mind to a, a day in 1980, uh, running into somebody who asked me, hey, how come, uh, how come Ron Hodges isn't playing? And I said, well, Ron Hodges has been on the disabled list since May or whatever it was. Don't hold me to that. But I remember Ron Hodges was, was the example in the middle of summer. And I'm thinking, you know... If a guy hasn't been around at all, you probably should have shown just a wee bit of curiosity if, if it matters to you. If it doesn't matter to you, maybe you think Ron Hodges is still on the team. Yeah, he hasn't been since 1984. Ideally, yeah, you know, you, 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 check your, uh, you check your transaction box in the morning paper, which is probably not the way most people get their news in 2023. Uh, if, if you're curious, you, you, you look out for these sorts of things and you find out. But yeah, the, there is so much churn today. That uh, I would not, I would not command ye and, and look askance and whatever uh, was intended by uh, keep up. And as for, for Gerald Williams, yeah, I felt bad uh, when Gerald Williams died. That uh, one of the only things I had written about him was kind of a dig. Uh, he was in his last year in 2005 and you know, was remembered in 2022 by his former teammates as, as a really good influence and a guy who'd had some good years before coming to the Mets. He was kind of at the end of the line here. So um, like like you said, a cap tip to Gerald Williams. Uh, I would like to extract that <laughs> from the commandments all these years later. 
But uh, yeah, if, if you really care, keep keep an eye on the roster. One more from 2005. Sweat the small stuff. Why isn't Brian Dawback getting more playing time? It's a rhetorical question for our purposes, but you're just not applying yourself if you don't lie awake and wonder. He could be the right-handed DH right now at the age of 51 if he wasn't the Washington AAA hitting coach in Rochester. I like sweating the small stuff. I think that's part of my fandom. Your perspiration is showing, and it is to your credit to know what Brian Dawback, who was up for approximately 10 minutes in the year 2005, <laughs> hence he was my handy example that morning or afternoon or whenever I wrote this, but he he was in the in our lives as, as Mets fans. Again, no, no offense to Mr. Dawback. That was small stuff. and uh, But the, the point being, you're a fan. You think about these things. Don't, again, to go back to what I was saying about uh, you shouldn't feel a need to explain yourself. Don't feel a need to, to explain yourself. Don't say, I'm crazy for worrying about this stuff. I'm insane. Don't apologize. Your mind is going to wander. And sometimes you can't sleep and you're going to wonder, what's up with Brian Dawback or Tommy Pham to be contemporary, as Keith Hernandez would say. So it's baseball. It's a lot of small stuff. Hopefully it's fun. I think the small stuff makes baseball even better. Now it's time to remember Dennis Rybant, because anybody that wore a Mets uniform is worth remembering. Yes. Dennis Rybant died within the last week or two. We learned about it, I guess, last week. And Dennis Rybant occupies a very specific place in Mets history. He was essentially the first young pitcher who was coming through on a regular basis for a bad Mets team. In his case, the Mets teams of 1964 through 1966, most specifically 1966, when he put up the first legitimate winning record by a Mets starting pitcher. And at the time, he was, I believe, let's see, he was born 41 and his birthday was late in the year. So we're talking about a guy who's not even 25 most of that year. And what else could you look forward to as a Mets fan who was used, used to your team losing 100-plus games and your pitchers, even the ones who you know were hanging in there as best as they could, posting losing records because when they were good, uh, they usually weren't getting a lot of support on offense or on defense. Dennis Ryband came to the Mets in August of 64 in a trade for a veteran pitcher that a team in better shape, in that case, the Braves of Milwaukee, uh, wanted Frank Larry for their pennant aspirations, which didn't pan out, and they gave us Dennis Ryband. And Dennis Ryband, in his first Shea Stadium start, the first year of Shea Stadium, throws a shutout, doesn't walk anybody, and strikes out 10. And this is when 10 strikeouts in a game was really noteworthy. Going the distance <clears throat> was pretty good, too but it wasn't you know, unheard of as it is today. Uh, you know, Ryband had some ups and downs the rest of that year. The next year, had actually had to go spend some time in AAA Buffalo. But somewhere along the way in 1966, he gained West Westrom's confidence, Westrom having succeeded. Casey Stengel, as manager, became part of the rotation and for a few beautiful months was probably as good as, uh, maybe I don't, I don't want to exaggerate, because he probably is any good as, as any pitcher in the National League not named Sandy Koufax or Juan Marichal. That might be a bit much, but he was putting up wins and not losing games and keeping his ERA under three and completing the games he started. And if you were around in 1966, which 
as far as being a Mets fan, I have to say I wasn't. But if you were around in 1966, you remember Dennis Ryband and you appreciated what Dennis Ryband was doing. Most importantly, you took heart. You took hope from what Dennis Ryband was doing. Because a decade plus later, the Mets are in that sort of dreary place where the team isn't very good. And if a young pitcher comes up, whether it's Roy Lee Jackson or Jackson Todd or John Pacella with the hat falling off or a little later, Charlie Paleo or Scott Holman, these sorts of guys, you'd go, oh, if, if, if he's real, we don't have to worry so much every fourth day or fifth day. And then, you know, all those guys kind of came and went. Dennis Ryband was a guy you'd say, hey, he just put up a whole year. You know, what did, was his record at, at, I think his record was 11 and 9 when the year ended. It was 11 and 6 at one point, early September. And just knowing what it's like to root for a lousy Mets team, when you think of a pitcher being 11 and 6 and your team is scuffling just to stay out of last place, you know, that's no pun intended on, on the, one of the first Mets, but that's marvelous. That's something you just, you know, build your hopes on. And at that point, the Mets have had some young pitchers have a good game here, a good game there. There would inevitably be an arm injury. But by 66, hey, we can build on Dennis Ryband. I don't know who else we have in the uh, in the farm system. And you know, he, he, was, he wasn't like really a power pitcher. He did strike out those 10. I, I've read some of his teammates' comments on him. It was more like he had a lot of heart. He was a bulldog. He didn't give up. He would get out of trouble. And if you could do that for an entire year, come out with a winning record, that's fantastic. And you know who else thought it was fantastic? The Pittsburgh Pirates, because the Pittsburgh Pirates were interested in getting Dennis Ryband after 1966. And the Mets were interested in getting a couple of Pittsburgh Pirates, uh, one of whom was a pitcher whose name we would come to know from the 69 Mets, Don Cardwell. One was a center fielder whose name we would come to know as a case study in regret, Don Bosch, because he was going to fill that center field hole that had existed basically since Richie Ashburn retired. And he didn't, and he was on his way to Montreal, either an expansion drafter or they bought his contract, I don't remember. But uh, Dennis Ryband, who you would have thought would be an important part of a team that was suddenly going to get better, he wasn't around at all. He was the price of admission to get this fantastic center fielder, Don Bosch, and this veteran pitcher, Don Cardwell. And, you know, this was his reaction. It killed me. It broke my heart when I was traded to the Pirates. It took a while to get used to it because I love New York. I was the first Met pitcher to have a winning record. It was a big disappointment. And he especially liked pitching at Chase Stadium. He liked the fact that the fans expressed themselves so freely in those days. And this might have been a ready-made situation. We could be talking. Even though Don Cardwell was very important in 1969, we hear his name come up in, in tandem with Jerry Kuzman's as one nothing shutouts over the Pirates where they each – each of the pitchers drove in the winning runs in a doubleheader. Uh, Cardwell is, is not incidental to that season. You know, Seaver and Kuzman and Ryan and Gentry and McAndrew all benefited from having a veteran pitcher around. Gil Hodges certainly trusted him. But who is to say that if a trade had never been made, that, well, Dennis Ryband would have hung in there a couple more years and been part of the rotation with those young pitchers I just mentioned. As it happened, Ryband had essentially one more pretty good full year with the Pirates. And then he became one of those guys who got traded a lot, got traded through Detroit, which was interesting for him because he's from Detroit, got to play on the 68 Tigers, but they traded him before their World Series. And he bounced around to a few more teams. 
And then he bounced around the minors with a few more organizations and never made it back. Um, I'm not aware of arm trouble as, you know, as I was reading about him. I, I imagine there, there must have been something that did not work out. But so, you know, we got the best of Dennis Ryman when we did. It's, it's, it's funny when you, you look at a name and it's just a name you've known and a, and a vague idea you've had. You know, I, I went back after I, I heard about his passing to uh, you know a wonderful book uh, by a wonderful writer who is no longer with us, our, our old friend Dana Brand, who talked about you know a lot in, in this book, The Last Days of Shea. He wrote two of them about his life going to Shea Stadium and loving the Mets. And he talked about like just one year where for family reasons, he was not in New York. So from April to October, 1966, I was away. And that's the reason I can't remember Dennis Ryback because he never saw him pitch in 1966. It's funny how that works. That, you know, what one of the things you remember about somebody is, you know, I never saw Dennis Ryback, but he's lived on, you know, his, his name often comes up by those who were around fond memories, not only of specific games, but also just again, that winning record. And when your team is lousy, when, when, when you're not, you know, debating, is this team good? Is this team not good? When you know your team is lousy and has always, in this case, always been lousy from 62 forward, when you suddenly have somebody who can win, that's godsend. That's a miracle, a miracle before the miracle Mets of 69. Dennis Ryband gave us the best of himself, retired in 73, pitched in the majors only until 69. So that tells you he kept trying to make it back, put up some good numbers in the minors and the AAA levels for other teams, but for whatever reason, did not get called back up by anybody. And he said, you know, I got to get on with my life. Spent 50 years after baseball, died at the age of 81. You know, it always feels too soon to say a baseball player who uh, people rooted for when they were kids uh, has passed on. But you know, 81, let's be happy <laughs> at that time. We always miss a Met. And uh, we are always thankful for, for what various Mets have, have done uh, to make us think of them. So Dennis Ryband, first winning pitcher. Thanks for clearing away some disappointment for us. I know it was disappointing to be traded. Thanks for making your turns in the rotation not disappointing, but something that something we hadn't had as Mets fans before. And I'll use the first person plural in the ethnic sense, shall we say, because we are Mets fans, even if we weren't there or not. Thanks for giving us anticipation. Thanks for letting us look forward to your starts. Thanks for going 11 and 9. And thanks for that, Greg. Our condolences to Dennis Ryband's friends and family. May his memory be a blessing. And that'll do it for this episode of National League Town. This weekend, the Mets are home with the Rockies before going back on the road to play the Reds and then the Nationals. A big national series, at least big for me. And we'll talk about that more next week. We thank you for listening. Until next time, I'm Jeff Heisen. I would sweat the small stuff unless they would check my glove and tell me to go change it. I'm Greg Prince. And as always, let's go Mets. As a bonus to you for listening to the entire show, here are outtakes of me trying to pronounce Jeff Passan's name correctly. Jeff Passan of Passan. You, you like Jeff Passan and you, can, you still can't pronounce it. Jeff Passan was asked by... <laughs> I did it again? Jeff Passan... Passan... <laughs> I did it again. Copyright 2023 music provided by the Royal Arctic Institute. Check them out on Spotify. Jeff Passan...